Good morning. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Jude. The book of Jude. Grateful to be able to open the Word with you this morning. We're beginning a new series uh, on this short book of Jude. We have, a comp- we have gone through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We'll see some, some themes crop up in, June that, in Jude that we have seen already in these other books as well. Um, but there's a lot, a lot for us to learn in this short book. Once you have found your place there in Jude, please stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word. And we're going to look at the first four verses this morning, and I will read these again. Thank you, Evan, for reading us the whole book. Jude, the first four verses, reading from the English Standard Version. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Father in heaven, we come again uh, to your word now and we plead your throne of grace. Father, we pray that you would implant this word in our hearts this morning. May it be alive in our hearts as it is alive in this, in this book. It is, it is living. And may, Father, you, by the power of your spirit, Drive it deep within us, Lord. May we be changed by this living word, this good news that you've given to us. Give us understanding, Father. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Jude is a short book, as you can see, 25 verses long. And as we see in the first verse there, it's written by this man Jude, or uh, then in scriptural times he could have been called Judas. And it's not the man who betrayed Christ, as we know that, that uh, the man who betrayed Christ was also called Judas or Jude. But this man is the brother of James. And he mentions in verse 1 that he is a servant of Jesus Christ. But he wasn't just the servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. He was also the brother of Jesus. Luke six thirteen through 16. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles, Simon, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, or in the Greek, Judas, the brother of James. Acts one thirteen also identifies this man as the brother of James. And James was a half-brother of Christ. Matthew Henry It is really a greater honor to be a faithful servant of Jesus Christ than to be akin to him according to the flesh. This is James uh, in his book as well. 
uh, says he's a servant of Christ. Jude does as well. There's this humility in which they are approaching the writing of this book. So he was an apostle. He was one of the 12. The book of Jude, in its substance, closely resembles Second Peter. In fact, it is uh, thought to believe that Peter wrote the book of Second Peter as a result of what he had read in this book of Jude. It's presumed to have been written in the early to mid-60s, and there is little that we know of whom it was intended for. But if you look at the, the nature of what he's writing and some of the analogies that he uses and some of the things that he refers to, it seems clear that he's writing to a Jewish audience or at least someone that would be very well familiar with the Jewish culture back then. If you're looking at your Bible, look with me at the structure of the book. It's really quite straightforward. In the first two verses here, which we'll look at this morning, is, as in many of the books in the New Testament, you have the greeting and the introduction. He introduces himself. Verse 3, we have the main theme of the book, contending for the true faith of Jesus Christ. Contending for the true faith of Jesus Christ. Verse 4 gives us reason why we must contend, that being against false teachers in the church. And verse 4 also gives us some description. They're ungodly in some of their characteristics. They delight in sensuality rather than in the lordship of Christ. Verse 5 through 16 uh, teaches us about the judgment that is reserved for false teachers as well as the, the nature and the character of these false teachers. And then in verse 17, Jude begins to conclude the letter. He encourages the church that you see in verse 20 there. Build yourselves up with your most holy faith. In many ways, pointing back to verse 3, the main theme, contending for the true faith of Jesus Christ. Probably the two most well-known verses in this book are verse 24 and 25. This doxology, this benediction that we so often refer to at the end of a service... Now to him who is able. And once we get to verse 24 and 25, I think you're going to see very clearly it's the bookend to verse 1 and 2. It's, it's what uh, surrounds each side of this book. So if you take uh, the main theme, contending for the faith in verse 3, but you understand verse 1 and 2, this uh, glorious call of the gospel that you see, in verse uh, 1 and 2. And then you also take the way he glorifies God in Christ in verse 24 and 25. I think you could really say that the main theme of the book is the majesty and glory of God in the work of salvation through Christ that should both delight us and compel us to contend for the faith. So it's not simply just contending for the faith. But we contend for the faith because of the majesty and worth of what God has done for us through Christ. This morning we're going to look at the first four verses in this book. And we're going to look at three, three points if you're taking notes. Verses 1 and 2 we'll look at the blessed recipients. The blessed recipients. Verse 3 we'll see the call to earnestly contend for the faith. Earnestly contend for the faith. And then verse 4, we'll see how God saves and protects his bride, the church. God saves and protects his bride, the church. 
Look with me at the verse, first two verses here. The blessed recipients. The blessed recipients of this letter are you and me. We are the one to whom Jude is writing. Now, certainly he's writing to people in that day, but he's writing to the church. He's writing to Christ's bride. Notice, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. As we talked about in first light there, God does the calling. He draws us to himself it's as a, a net that has been cast out and draws this, the fish into the boat. God draws us to himself. Christ calls Lazarus out of the grave to life. He calls us from death to life. The calling is one that is beautiful. And the calling is one that is here for us today. Christ calls us to himself. If you do not know him, he calls you today. Come to him. Come to him and be saved. Come to him and respond to his call for forgiveness of sins and eternal life. For to neglect that is essentially damning yourself to hell. Though you would not choose that, choose Christ. Come to him. Respond to his call. God calls us. But he not only calls us, he calls us with love. Look at there. Beloved in God the Father. God loving us with an everlasting love. He's called you to life because he loves you. We studied in 1 John, God is love. The great hymn of the faith. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen could ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star reaches to the lowest hell. God's love, this, this magnificent expression of his love in Christ, saving us from our sin. But not only does he call us in love, he, that love is visible in that he keeps us. To those who are called, beloved, are loved in God the Father and kept for Christ. Or a better translation would be kept or preserved in Christ. He, he keeps us. He keeps us his for eternity. He loves us enough to send his son. But then we don't have to have ever have to have confidence. In our salvation being something that we have to do. In our own good works. But it's always in the work of Christ. Our salvation being preserved by Christ. And in the context of what we're going to look at today, it's preserved in the face. It's kept in, it we're kept in the faith and preserved in the face of opposition, in the face of false teaching, in the face of false doctrine. In our day and age this morning and today, this should be a tremendous comfort to us that God keeps us in Christ. The opposition is certainly growing against the church universally. It's certainly growing against Christianity here in America. We're, we're beginning to see persecution in this nation. We're beginning to see the, 
as it always has been in, in some case, but increasingly so, the social pressures upon the family, the social pressures upon the church to conform to a new standard of morality. And certainly not just nationally and corporately, but also personally. That as we face this morning, as you face this morning, pressures and challenges from the father of lies, the the enemy of our souls, as we struggle and fight against the sin that so easily besets, that so easily entangles us, that so easily constrains us. As we have walked in, every one of us this morning, with something upon our hearts and minds that no one else knows about, that burdens us deeply, that we're concerned about something from the past week or something to go that's going to happen this next week. We're we're burdened with that load of care and yet we should find great comfort in the God of love who has called us in his love and then that love in Christ keeping us, holding us, constraining us, lovingly caring for us and leading us for eternity for his glory. He's called us out of darkness into light. He's given us eternal life and sweet communion with him. And he keeps us. He keeps, he's going to keep us corporately as a church for eternity in Christ. In the face of opposition, in the face of false teaching. But he's also going to keep you personally. As we each personally struggle in this in this life, in this race. What a comfort. That's why Jude, as you see in verse 2, follows up with this sweet reminder of the beauty of the gospel by saying, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. It's not enough just that he, it's not enough for God just that he would call you in his love and keep you in Christ for eternity, there's, there's this multiplying of his mercy, peace, and love. Now, we are, we are limited in our understanding of his mercy, peace, and love. It, it is, is not limited by God. It is limited in our finite minds to understand the extent of this. But, but notice the progression here. Mercy, peace, and love. As we would see God's mercy for us, upon us, in the work of Christ and salvation, peace comes. Peace always comes when we walk out our lives in obedience to God the Father. So as we recognize His mercy for us in salvation, and respond to that in obedience, and respond to that in faith, faithful obedience to His ways, peace comes. But then that's not enough as that peace of God that surpasses all understanding surrounds us. Love comes because as we see his mercy and the peace he gives us, we then respond in love. It's, it's not an automatic response. It's one that comes as we then see in a greater way his mercy upon our lives. As God's peace is multiplied in our hearts, as we respond obediently in faith to his mercy in our lives, our love for him grows. We understand greater how the mercy he has for us is based upon his love for us. And that love drawing us multiplies in us love for him. We love 
because he first loved us. So it's not, it's not that he multiplies it to us. It's that as we see it more clearly, it is multiplied exponentially in our own hearts, in our own minds. We see it in a greater way. So let's sum up these first two verses here. We are the blessed recipients of this letter due to his love in calling us and keeping us in the faith by the work of Christ. And as we grow in our understanding of that mercy and peace, peace that is so needed in the face of opposition today, love for him is multiplied. Those three characteristics, mercy, peace, and love is multiplied in our hearts and it grows and it grows and it grows. What a gift. What a, what a grace of the Lord. That he would, he would not just call us in his love and keep us, but that then he, as we respond to that, we get a greater understanding. We have so much. We have so much to be thankful for as, as followers of Christ. That no matter the opposition, no matter the circumstances that each one of us individually face this morning, today, we can awake tomorrow morning Even though those circumstances and opposition may not be in line with what we're interested in, we have so much because of what he's done for us here and as Jude has told us in these first two verses to be thankful for. We have so much to be thankful for. We have so much grace that has been poured out upon us. And that should then call us to not only praise him but to respond to that grace in in walking out our lives in obedience to him. That he has called us in love to himself. And then, and then notice, he bases that relationship for eternity. He bases the relationship with you for eternity. Not upon whether or not you respond to his love perfectly. But in the obedience and perfect work of Christ. That's what's going to hold you for eternity. Now certainly we must respond in love to him. That's a mark of, of the true believer. But we'll never respond perfectly. But Christ did. And that's the good news of, of salvation. Verse 1. Blessed recipients. We are the blessed recipients. Verse 1 and 2. Verses 3. Second point. The call to earnestly contend for the faith. The call to earnestly contend for the faith. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Notice the urgency here that Jude is communicating. It's necessary, very necessary, that he write about these matters. It's of great importance to you, his intended recipients. And we know... According to verse 1 and 2, we are these intended recipients. It's very important, it's very necessary that I write to you about contending for the faith. Notice, I urgently write about a matter more pressing than what I desire to write about. His, this was not his desire to write about this. His desire, as you see there, is to write about our common salvation. But he, he shifts it. I want, I want to write you 
write to you about our common faith. I want to write to you about the bond that we have in Christ. I want to write to you about this glorious work of salvation that we are united in, even though maybe separated. And I'm having to send this letter to you. I want to encourage you in that bond of faith. But a more pressing matter is at hand. The circumstances have called for a change of plans here. I don't know about you, but I don't go to bed too often thinking, yep, every one of the plans that I made this morning have come to perfect fruition just the way I put it together. I can sleep well now, knowing that it all worked out the way I wanted to. Oh no, we know that isn't the case. God directs the steps. God channels the hearts of kings to where he will. Proverbs 16 Commit your way into the Lord and he will direct your steps. That should be a, a theme upon our mind every day when we wake up. That we're submitted to whatever God's plans would be. And Jude is a, is a, a good example of this. We can all be more flexible. And we certainly plan our steps, but being flexible and, and moving as God directs throughout the day. But that that flexibility, I would submit, is going to really be proportional to how much you see God's sovereign love for you in verses 1 and 2. As you recognize who he is as God, that gives us the ability to better respond and be flexible. Jude responds, well... The necessity of whatever's going on there changes the plans. And instead of writing about our common faith, he appeals to us to contend for that faith. To contend for that faith. The word contend means to struggle. Jude is exhorting us, defend the faith, struggle for the faith, struggle against the false gospel, fight against the false teaching that desires to come into the church. Understand the necessity to contend for that faith. It's not a choice. It's not something to be lackadaisical about in our own minds. Because false doctrine, wrong doctrine leads to wrong thinking. Wrong thinking leads to sin. We know this. So we should never just be flippant. We should always urgently contend for right doctrine in our own minds. That we might be able to live out. A life that is pleasing to the Lord. And we as Christians must be about defending the truth. The doctrines of scripture. The doctrines of our faith. In Christ should be very precious to us. The faith once delivered to us. You notice that at the end of verse 3. The faith that is firm. That is secure. That's what this is meaning here. It's, it's unchanged. It's the same from the beginning. We sang this morning. Faith of our fathers. That faith that has been given to us by Christ Jesus, it's been written in this book, it's never changed. It's been inspired by the Holy Spirit. But he, he talks about the faith. Notice that. I write to you about our common I wanted to write to you about our common salvation. I find it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. Notice there are, there are hills that are better to die upon than others. We all know this. The sovereignty of God, the inerrancy of Scripture, the five solas, the Trinity, faith alone, grace alone, glory of God alone, Scripture alone. That's a, those are good places to start 
and contending for the faith. But we've got to be very wise in our contending. Because personal convictions are, are, are just that. They're personal. They, they should be there. They're totally taught in Scripture. But there are bigger hills to die upon than my own personal convictions on some things. We must contend for the faith. There was a theologian in Calvin's day by the name of Biza. He was a uh, close comrade to Calvin. He actually succeeded Calvin after Calvin's death. In fact, if you go to Geneva and you see the reformers wall there and the statues that are lined up, Biza is one of the gentlemen. He said the best way to contend for the faith is with sound doctrine and example of a holy life. The best way to contend for the faith is with sound doctrine and an example of a holy life. May we contend for the faith in that way. Living our lives out in holiness. Living our lives out in articulating sound doctrine. Clear teaching of the word. The call to earnestly contend for the faith. It's desperately needed today. Verse 4. Verse 4, third point. God saves and protects his bride, the church. God saves and protects his bride, the church. We aren't left, uh, Jude doesn't leave us long with whom we are to contend against. Verse 4, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture makes it very clear, as we've been studying in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, that the greatest danger to the doctrine of the church comes from within. It's in those pews that is the greatest danger to the true doctrine of the church. If we, if we think it's bad in our country now, anybody who was born after the 1970s, go talk to somebody who was, born, who was alive in the 1970s. The liberalism that was across this nation... Was, was rampant. It almost delivered the knockout blow to the true faith of the church. And if it, if it hadn't been, thank God for men like Jay Adams and Frank Barker, men like Joe Bailey and Francis Schaefer and R.C. Sproul and others whom God used to contend for the faith, we, we wouldn't be standing, or we wouldn't be sitting in this church today. I certainly wouldn't be preaching in the word probably like this because of what was happening in our nation but faith of our fathers living still. I love that first verse that we sang this morning. In spite of dungeon, fire, and sword. So the call here to continue to contend for the faith. And, but notice, if the danger is within the church, it creeps in unnoticed. It doesn't come through the, those two double doors in the back. That, those words creep in unnoticed means to slip in stealthily. The assault against true doctrine in the church is, is always one that comes in the form of a secret mission. Satan, the father of lies, he's, he trains and he plans tirelessly to implement a stealth mission to get inside the church to infiltrate the hearts and minds of the men and women inside the church that will corrupt the truth, that will promote a false gospel. That will lead others astray by tickling their ears, telling them what they want to hear, rather than what they need to hear, the truth of Scripture. 
We've warned about this. Second Peter warns us about this. Christ warns us about this. First, second, third John warns us about this. Jude warns us about this. There's so much warning to us. We should be as a church heeding going, this is obviously going to happen. It comes through me. It comes through you. This creeping in to, to corrupt I, I would submit to you that I don't think there's much more I would submit to you that I don't think there's much more danger to the church today than than Christian books sold in Walmart and Christianity as it's seen on TV. Because you take you take anything that you see about Christianity uh, in, in uh, on, TV, on TV or in, or in the movies or in Walmart and I would tell you take it with an 800 pound bag of salt skip the five go right for 800 because all of it's designed for entertainment it's all designed to sell it's all designed to to tickle your fancy it's all designed to to promote a message that will make money it's not designed, it's not designated as a whole to stand for truth. It's just not. It's just not. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people. That seems to be a difficult passage to understand. What is Jude telling us here? But if you go a little deeper in the original language, we see that word designated means foretold, meaning certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago we told you about. This was foretold. This was prophesied. Christ told us himself, watch out for false teachers. They're going to be there. Second Peter 2, 1 through 3. But false teachers also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. What What a gracious provision of the Lord. That not only is he going to save us, but he protects us by telling us about this. And we're going to see the the destruction um, that they bring upon themselves, this condemnation, this judgment that they bring upon themselves uh, next week and the following weeks as we look through verse 5 through through 16. But it's been told to us. God tells us in scripture that this is coming. This is a grace of the Lord. The God who saves is also the God who protects. He protects us. He tells us this is going to this is going to come about. This is going to happen. And we see this happening all the way back in the 60s, not the 1960s, but literally 6-0. So attacks on the doctrine of scripture are are not new. They've been happening for almost 2000 years. And he warns us not only that false teachers will come, he warns us In case we would be the false teachers, he warns us, look at the judgment that is is reserved for those who would follow in that way. We see the character of these false teachers, ungodly people 
who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Ungodly people. Why? Because they pervert the grace of God to their own sensual desires, their own sensual passions. But notice, they don't deny the grace of God. No, they love the grace of God. That's their license to sin. It's not the grace of God that they deny, but they deny our only master and Lord. They deny the lordship of Christ and the mastery he has over their life. Calvin says, it was not the grace, but the ruling power of Christ that was denied. They boasted of his grace, but they did not submit to him as king. May that never be said of us, that we would use God's grace as a license to sin. May his grace never be cheap in our own minds. May it always be costly, bought by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Creating in us then a hatred for sin. May we hate sin. Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. That perversion of grace comes when we deny in our own hearts the lordship of Jesus Christ. Those pockets that we want to res- of sin that we want to reserve for ourselves. That's, that's when the perversion of grace comes. When we say, you can have that and that and that and that, but I want that little sin. That one's mine. I'm going to enjoy it. Calvin again, that Christ retains us as his peculiar treasure. We must remember that he died and rose again for us, that he might have dominion over our life and death. As believers, we should joyously submit to the lordship of Christ in our lives. And that is when we use his grace for good, not for a license to sin. God protects his bride. God protects us, the church. He protects us through forewarning, for for prophesying, for telling us in this book of life, of false teachers, of protecting us by keeping us in the face of the opposition to our faith. God saves us. God protects us. God in his omniscience knows all things. And he calls for you and he calls for me to contend for that faith. So practically this morning, the question for us should be, are we contending for the faith? Or do we realize God's grace in our life this morning that through his calling us in love and keeping us in Christ... That that calling and, and keeping, that grace that has been bestowed upon us provides the power and the motivation to contend for the faith. We should be contending for it in our, in our personal lives, in our, in our families, in this church, in our nation. But we don't contend for it hopelessly. We contend for it with joy because he contended, Christ contended for us. He contended for us and he won. 
And he rules and he reigns and he's victorious. And as we respond to his grace and contend, we share in that victory as well. So let's contend for the faith. Let's contend privately. And I would, I would admonish you and encourage you this morning. Don't give up in the fight. Don't give up in the fight against sin and in the fight for faith in your own hearts as you, as you battle sin. But fight in the power of Christ. Struggle and wage war against that sin because he did it for you. And he will provide the grace for you as you desire and as you respond obediently in faith to the grace he gives you in, in fighting. He will keep you and, and see you through that battle. Jude writes to the church this morning. Not just to the people that lead the church, but to you and says, you must be the ones who contend for the faith. I'm to contend for the faith as well, but you, you're the one who's called to contend for the faith. Because if we as a church corporately don't contend for the faith in our private lives and in our families, there's no way we'll contend for it corporately. And that false teaching will come in and corrupt, but it will come through us. So may we contend this morning. May we be committed to that contending. The times are evil. The false teaching today is, is so pervasive. But may we contend in the power of Christ who contended, who contended for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we rejoice in, in the victory that you have won for us by your shed blood. You contended to the point of shedding blood. And you've told us we have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. But you did. And that gives us the grace and the ability this morning to contend. Father, we are the blessed recipients of this book because of your work upon the cross for us and drawing us to yourself. And you're calling us, Father, to contend for the faith. But we give you glory, Father, that you would protect us by letting us know that where that opposition is going to come and how it's going to come. And that you not only have saved us, that, but that you will keep us in Christ and protect us against this. Oh, Father, may we use that grace there to respond in faith, in obedience to the life of a Christian, to what it means to be a disciple and follower of Christ, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live, Father, by your grace, self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. And we wait, Father, we wait longingly for you to come, where we can experience that continual keeping in Christ for eternity singing your praises, praising your glorious name. Father, we have much to give thanks for today. And we all, Father, have come this morning with burdens and oppositions. But may our hearts be, be comforted. 
but enlivened by seeing once again your, your love for us, your bride, the church. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.